Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. seated this morning. If you'll join me this morning in the book of Isaiah chapter 53, we'll read verses 3 through 5 and we'll conclude our study, our discussion this month uh, in reference to who's to blame. Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 5 says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And so for the past three Sundays, we've discussed the question and pondered the question, who's to blame? We've talked about blaming family. We've discussed blaming the church. And last week, we spoke on blaming the enemy. And so this morning, we're going to we're going to sort of kind of switch gears here. And we're going we're gonna to stop talking about blaming others, blaming the church, and blaming the enemy. And we're going to talk about who took our blame. And that Jesus took our blame. Selflessness is certainly not a trait that marks our modern day society as a whole. Selflessness is certainly not that trait. Self-sacrifice is a, is, is a rare commodity among human beings. I certainly don't want to start off on a negative foot, and I don't want to paint a picture that all people are selfish and self-centered, because that certainly would be an inaccurate statement. It would be unfair to the countless of people that got up this morning and went to a job to risk their lives right now as we speak. Scores of people got up this morning and they put on a uniform and they went to work to protect those who seemingly cannot protect themselves. And so I'm not at all suggesting that every single human being on this earth, all human beings, are selfish. Yet humanity as a whole display that trait daily. Selfish. Self-centered. The national news, the global news reports on it. We see it every day. We see it on the interstate. We experience it in retail establishments. Can I get an amen? Just try to go shopping on Black Friday this year. They had a break last year. I don't think I want to go anywhere. And so we see it all over the place. We see this selfish, this selfish and self-centered behavior, and we see it. But we, ourselves, in times past, have been participants. 
I think it's safe to say that we've all been guilty at one time or another of being selfish or self-centered, guilty of putting ourselves first rather than our fellow man, really and truly just plain guilty. Such was not the case of an innocent man who was put to death. Everyone said he was innocent, regarded by many yet accused by mobs, but for what? The man who had betrayed him, after all, had returned the bounty. The wife of the governor who presided over his kangaroo court emphatically declared his righteousness. In fact, she even admonished her husband of his recusal. The governor himself stated, I find no fault in this man. Even the ruler who ordered the death of someone that was very near to him declared his innocence. And so such unjust and unfounded accusations yet justified in their actions. But how? How could they justify this? How would the court reach such a verdict with so many unaccompanied claims of guilt? Because everyone said he was innocent of all crimes. Nevertheless, the innocent man was sentenced to death. However, as counterintuitive and as as, as counterproductive as this may sound, even in the midst of such injustice, justice was and would be served. And it would be served through an act of total selflessness. Willingly, Jesus Christ postured himself to receive a full punishment for things he had never, ever committed. Reluctant in his flesh, yes, Yet willing in his spirit, he prayed in Matthew 26, O oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Drinking from that cup would be repulsive. It went against everything in his mortal body and in his fleshly intuition to drink from that cup. Drinking from this cup would be vile, and it would be disgusting. Drinking from this cup would be painful, and it would be severe, yet willingly he drank. It's sort of a word picture that we're presented here with, because the Bible connects the imagery of the cup with the anger of God. Jeremiah 25 and 15, and Isaiah 51 and 17 both make references to the, quote, cup of his fury. With the drinking of the cup, Jesus took upon himself God's fury against every sin that had been or ever would be committed. Born into this world completely and utterly innocent, yet born into this world to die for the guilty. Isaiah foresaw this in his writing and in his proclamation approximately 700 years before his birth. But not only did he see what would happen, he saw the reason for the suffering. His prophecy presented a cause for his suffering. And in this, Isaiah makes no bones about it. He didn't beat around the bush and he didn't put on kid gloves to handle the proclamation. Isaiah simply cleared his throat and declared matter-of-factly in Isaiah 53 and 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. Unapologetically, Isaiah says we are to blame. It's not all of these other outside influences, but he emphatically states unapologetically that we are to blame. We are the cause of his suffering, and we are the cause of his death because we have all gone our own way. It's the overarching admonition of the world. It's the have-it-your-way mentality. Now, Brother Williams, he, he, he does this basically every time. He somehow gets into these notes that I write, and then he likes to beat me to the punch. But I had this written down before you said it last week. It's the have-it-your-way mentality. For more than over 40 years, the fast food chain Burger King adopted this slogan, have it your way. However, in 2014, I didn't know this, but they adopted a more modern one. It says, be your way. They don't just say this, but they have a, they have a subtext to it that says the premise is to remind people that they can and should live how they want any time. Now, it's beyond anything that I can understand why some fast food chain would like to get in on the pseudo-political and the pseudo-social realm, the, the woke people of the day, and why they would need to say anything about that. If they're listening, I say just stick to the hamburgers because all this other stuff's not working out for you anyway. So just stick to the hamburgers. But it's the overarching admonition of the world. Have it your way. It's the mindset of society. It's the root cause of humanity's fall. Because going our own way is no small matter. Going our own way is of no small consequence. It doesn't just, it's not just one thing and it's done Because our way speaks directly of our sin and our failures. Our way is brought about by an iniquitous mindset that says, I can do this on my own and I don't need anyone to tell me what or how to do it. But it's the wayward nature of man that gets him in trouble every time without fail. Solomon said in Proverbs 14 and 12, he said it again in 16 and 25. And so if the Bible says it twice or more, you better listen up. But but he said, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so man does not possess within himself the ability to save himself. Man does not possess within himself the ability to guide himself. Let your conscience be your guide is dangerous advice and just do what your heart tells you to do is reckless behavior. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so I don't want to hurt your feelings this morning, but I really don't mind to hurt your feelings when I say this, but you don't have it all together, and neither do I. And so you can't hurt my feelings if you tell me, sir, you don't have it all together, because I've already come to terms with that a long time ago. I know because I've already tried it, and I know that my way does not work just like your way will not work. 
because it is in direct violation of his way. Our way does not work. Our way is a direct rejection of his way. Isaiah notes this in Isaiah 53. He says, he is despised and rejected of men. And we esteemed him not. However, but in spite of the rejection, Jesus still took our place. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, or whether we want to take uh, uh, possession of anything or not, whether we want to admit our involvement or not, the fact of the matter is that we are all involved in this, whether we're in church or whether we're out of church, whether we're in the world or whether we're out of the world. Verse 4, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced through for our transgressions verse 5 he was crushed for our iniquities he was chastened for our well-being he was scourged for our healing he took on the iniquity of us all in verse 6 verse 8 says he was stricken for our transgression in verse 11 he said he will bear our iniquities and verse 12 says that he bore the sin of Many. And so Jesus Christ took on the sin that belonged to us. He took on our sins. He took on our iniquities. He took on our shortcomings. And he took on our rebellion even though he was not rebellious. He took on what really belonged on us. And we despised him. It's very difficult for us to admit. It's very difficult for us to take responsibility for this. Because many would say, I didn't despise him. I don't despise him. Or perhaps they would ask the question, how? How would I have despised him? Or how did I despise him. We would like to think that someone else far removed from the situation are the ones that did all the despising and all of the rejection. After all, we are multiple millennia removed from the events surrounding the cross. We were not there. We did not stand in the mob and shout crucify him. Hear me now. We may be separated by time. But we are not separated by circumstance. And here's why. If we are to lay claim to the fact that he carried away our sorrows, if we are to take responsibility and lay claim to the fact that he bore our griefs or that he was wounded for us, uh, we also must accept at the same time that we are responsible for esteeming him not. Because we certainly can't take claim for one side of the equation because both make the whole. If he bore my griefs, then I despised him. If he bore my sins, I despised him. If he took away the sins of the world, we despised him. And so therefore we are now both the rejectors and the recipients because we have all gone our own way. Yet he took our blame. And so if that's the case, 
then what is the rejection? If that's the case, then how did we despise him or why is it that we despised him? The answer is absolutely simple, yet it is the most thing that has complexed this whole problem and situation. The answer is simply our flesh. Our flesh, our carnality, is an outright rejection of who he is. See, he represents everything that we are not. I'll say it again. We don't have it all together. I'm not a bag of chips, whatever that's called. That's saying all that in a bag of chips. I don't have it all together. And my flesh directly rejects him because of who he is. You see, he was humble, but our flesh rejects humility. He was lowly, but our flesh seeks to exalt itself in self-ambition. Just try to go on a fast. Now, you can forget to eat and look up, and it's 5 o'clock. Your flesh is like, I'm good with that. That's cool with that. I forgot too. But make a, make a, make a concerted effort to pray. You don't have to say it out loud. You can just think it in my mind. I'm going to fast tomorrow and see what wells up inside of you. You, you haven't even opened your eyes out of the bed yet and your stomach's already growling saying, feed me, I need food, I need sustenance, don't deny me. And so just try it one day and see what happens. And you'll see who's got this all wrapped up. He was, he was a servant, but our flesh seeks to be catered to and to be served because Jesus not only talked, but Jesus walked. He taught counterculture, but he also lived counterculture. His words matched his deeds, and his deeds matched his words, and they had no variableness in them. He was not into self-preservation. He was not into protecting his reputation or the survival of his self-image. He simply was and he is who he says he is. And our flesh, our carnality despises that kind of living. You see, our flesh is just content with appearing to be what it needs to be, yet not necessarily living like yet. And so to protect our self-image, we despised him, yet despite it all, Jesus ransomed us and took our place. He did not take the rejection personally. He did not take that rejection and turn around and put it back on us. He did not reject us because we rejected him. Instead, he loved us through it and gave himself a ransom for us. He could have laid greater blame on us than was already there. And it would have been justifiable. But instead, 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This was the plan. This was his purpose. This is what he knew would happen. He knew. God knew that humanity would fall. God knew that humanity would, would transgress against his word. God knew that on our own as sinners, we had no hope left in us. But God knew that we, were not being, we would not be able to do it on our own. 
but he was not willing to leave us hopeless. He was not willing to leave us all alone to flounder on our own because Paul said in 1 Timothy 3 and 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Can you get that? He was manifest in the same thing that I have to get up and walk in every single day. He didn't come as some celestial being, but he came in the flesh, the very thing that makes me stumble, the very thing that trips me up, the very thing that I have to fight every day. He came in the flesh. He came in the flesh. He said again, 1 Timothy 2 and 5, he said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so God robed himself in the flesh to become what we could not on our own. He came to make up the hedge. He came to stand in the gap. And he came to be what Paul said would be a mediator. Paul used a very interesting word when he used that word mediator. He said he would be a mediator between God and men. You see, a mediator is one who acts as a middle person. In a natural application, a mediator acts as an unbiased party to stand in the gap between two opposing opinions, positions, or arguments. Often, it is a person who sits in on a conversation about a dispute. He hears both sides of the argument and then offers potential solutions to attempt to resolve the dispute. In many cases, especially in, in civil litigation, it is the judge's decision to send a case for mediation to attempt to resolve the issue amicably and diplomatically without the judge making the final decision in that moment because the judge's decision is final. And so I know a little bit about this. And it's every part of my life and my career has been different things, but for some reason, it's always found its its avenue in enforcement. Whether it was credit manager, collector, corrections officer, IRS, not the IRS. I've always found myself in something along those lines. And so I have a little bit of experience in this. On occasion, as a creditor, it was necessary to attend court, to utilize the court system to recover unpaid balances that debtors owed. Oftentimes, if the debtor presented a reasonable issue to the court, the judge would offer an order mediation. A court-appointed licensed mediator would hear and oversee the two parties' arguments and discuss the debt. After each had had the opportunity to speak, the mediator would then offer solutions to help one side or the other hopes of both that an agreement could be made outside of the court. When the agreement was made, the two parties, along with the mediator, would enter the court, make the judge aware of the agreement, sign paperwork, and enter that into the court and the place of record. Now, 
when I took someone to court over a debt, I'm not being arrogant, they owed the money. There was no arbitrariness in it. There was no random act taking place. If I took someone to court, the debtor hands down owed the money that they were being summoned to court to pay and to provide an explanation as to why they had not paid it. There was no arguing whether or not they actually owed the debt. I held in my hands legally binding paperwork that they signed and I signed saying that they would pay the debt in which the creditor was giving them. But a reasonable judge would allow a reasonable solution as to not ruin that person's credit and potentially affecting their lives in the future because perhaps they fell on hard times or for some unforeseen circumstance. They, it prevented them from satisfying the loan. They had good intentions to begin with, but for some unavoidable reason, they just fell on hard times. Nevertheless, the debt must be satisfied. Can I tell you this morning that God has a dispute with humanity because of humanity's sin. Sin is a transgression against the law of God. 1 John 3 and 4. Sin is a rebellion against God. Deuteronomy 9 and 7. God hates sin. Our sin puts us at odds with God. Furthermore, the wages or the penalty for sin is death according to Romans 6 and 23. We are the guilty party. We are the ones to blame. But the judge has ordered mediation. Because the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 and 5, who is God manifested in the flesh, has become our mediator. And he mediates for us. And so just for a moment, imagine with me. Imagine that we are entering into a courtroom. We are guilty. We are dead to rights. There is absolutely nothing that can refutiate that we are guilty of all the crimes that we have been accused of. But the judge offers mediation. And in the process of that conversation, the creditor demands a payment. But you say, I don't have the means to pay it. I don't have what it takes to take care of this debt because I have no means to do it. But the mediator, he speaks up and he says, there's good news because I have a solution. And without delay, he takes you and the creditor, both parties before the judge and says, I will repay the debt. Now the creditor is satisfied and the debtor is set free and the mediator obligates himself in the situation to satisfy the creditor who was not obligated to do anything in the first place. His only job was to sit and listen and then offer up solutions but the mediator steps in and he says I will repay the debt. Now imagine this, the judge is the mediator and the mediator is the judge because they're one and the same. Can I tell you this morning that that's what Jesus did for us? 
He mediated for us. He stepped into the gap and he said, I'll make up the hedge. I'll make up what's lacking. I'll give what needs to be given to satisfy the debt. He took our blame and now we can stand blameless before God because he drank the cup. Because he drank the cup and took it upon himself. That's what made him able to stand in our place and he did not do this by strong arm tactics he did this willingly and he did this premeditatively because the Bible says that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and so before I was even a breath on this earth God set out to save me and to redeem me from the sin that would take a hold of my life this was preemptive it was his providential plan. As he created the world, he created it with the cross in view. Jesus Christ knew, and he set forth to come into this world to die. Drinking from the cup and taking our blame. It included the stripes upon his back. Drinking from the cup and taking our blame included the crown of thorns upon his head drinking from the cup and taking our blame included the spear in his side and the eventual agony of his death but it also included his silence if anyone could have spoke up in the moment if anyone could have opened their mouths and spoke more true words I am not to blame it would have been him yet the Bible says like a lamb before his shears he opened not his mouth Jesus didn't accuse others although he could have. Jesus didn't point the finger at anyone, although he would have had all right to do. And Jesus did not even defend his own innocence, although it would have been more than reasonable for him to do so. And so knowing this this morning, knowing that he could have, knowing that in our mind, in our human reasoning, that he should have, but he didn't. Knowing that, knowing that he took our blame, knowing that he took it upon himself, it ought to cease us from blaming anyone for anything in our lives. Could we blame others for our misfortunes? Sure. Could we blame our parents, our siblings, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, the devil, or even the church for discrepancies or inconsistencies or outright hurt? The answer to that would probably be a resounding yes, we could. But the bigger question to ask ourselves this morning, the more important matter that we should discuss is, would it even make a difference if we did? I say to that, absolutely not. 
Because the bottom line to all of this this morning is the simple fact that I must make heaven my home. I must take on the responsibility for the things that I have done to make heaven my home. And when I point the finger at other people or other things in my life, then in that moment I refuse to take responsibilities for my own actions, thus rendering myself incapable and helpless at changing anything that needs to be changed. If heaven is to become my home, and it must, I must be like him. And for me to be like him, I must surrender my will to him just like he did for me. During the Second World War, countless Allied soldiers put their lives on the line for the good of their country. Others simply offered themselves up in order to save comrades, but still, even in this time of true heroism, the story of John Robert Fox stands out. The artillery officer added his name to the history books and earned himself a posthumous Medal of Honor for the sacrifice he made one December day in 1944 when he was thousands of miles from home. Fox was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in May in 1915. By all accounts, he was a smart, diligent young man, and he earned a place at Wilberforce University. Here he signed up for the Reserve Officer Training Corps, meaning he not only finished with the college degree that he set forth to get, but he also finished with the rank of second lieutenant. When war broke out, he then took his commission and joined the 92nd Infantry Division, a segregated division for African-American soldiers who fought with distinction throughout the conflict. With his unit, Fox was sent to the European Theater of War. In 1944, he found himself fighting the Nazis in Italy. It was here where in December of that year, he was tasked to stay behind in the small village of Samalaconia, in Tuscany. The village had been overrun by Nazis and Americans were in retreat. Fox found a house to hide in and from the second floor he used his radio to contact his colleagues. And here's what's interesting. He called for artillery fire to be directed at the village in order to give the U.S. forces time to retreat regroup, and then launch a counterattack. Fox even specifically ordered a barrage on his own position. The gunner who received the call, the gunner who received that message, pointed out to him, you do know this is your position. He assumed that it was a mistake. He just read the coordinates wrong. You do know this is where you're sitting, sir. Fox, however, replied, fire it. There are more of them than there are of us. Famous last words of a true American hero. Fox's act of sacrifice was not in vain because 
As he planned, the artillery barrage did indeed give his comrades the chance to regroup and launch a successful counterattack. When the U.S. Army entered the city, they found Fox's body surrounded by the bodies of around 100 Germans. It wasn't until 1997 that his bravery was truly recognized. President Bill Clinton awarded the, the, the awarded Fox the Medal of Honor, which his widow Arlene picked up. Citation noted that it was for Fox's gallant and courageous actions at the supreme sacrifice of his own life. He was a true American hero who gave, who made the ultimate sacrifice. John Fox could, could have simply hid in that house and just let the battle play out the way that it was going to play out. John Fox could have allowed the battle to just go the way that it was going to go and everybody could just fend for themselves however they could see fit to do. And he could have diligently preserved his own life, but he didn't. Selflessly, he sacrificed his own life to give his fellow soldiers a fighting chance. God, he could have allowed humanity to just work it out on your own. He could have taken the mentality that you did this to yourself, you did this to your children, and they did it to their children and their children, and so on, and so on, and so forth. But he didn't. No, he robed himself in flesh, and he came to give you and I a fighting chance. Jesus came not only to say it, but Jesus came to show it and to show us how it's done Jesus came to deliver us from ourselves and from all of our hang-ups and from all of our shortcomings and from all of our sins. And he did this by taking the blame that was deserving of us so willingly. He did this by taking our blame so that we could stand before him blameless and so that we could live truly Free and how it was meant to be. Stand with me this morning as we come to a close. So these are not just stories. These are not just fables for us to entertain ourselves with. Jesus really did come to this earth. And he really did come to show us the way. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And if any man is going to go unto the Father, he's only going to do it one way, and he's only going to do it through me, and this is how it will 
be done. And so he gave us his nature so that we could experience his nature and that, that we can then become an extension of his grace toward others. No longer pointing the finger. No more pointing the blame. Genuinely living the way that he intended for us to live. Responsible, blameless, surrendered, and selfless just like he did. And if you want that this morning, I want you to lift your hands one time and praise him and magnify him for what he has done and for who he is. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you've done. God, we thank you for your mercy toward us, God. We thank you for your love that you've shown toward us, God. While we were yet sinners, God, while we were yet in the gutter of life, Lord, you stood in a place of accusation and you stood in a place of absolute sentencing and you took our blame and you sat in, on that cross and you were nailed to that cross for our sins and our transgressions God and we will never forget it but we will praise you and we will magnify you and we will give you all the glory for This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806. Or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.